could you take us through your career experience uh, in a bit of detail? Sure. Uh, look, I started my uh, career back in the 70s with a firm called Iceland. Uh, it's still running today. It's a pretty powerful frozen food uh, supermarket retailer. And uh, I cut my teeth in, in operational management with that firm. And I'm eternally grateful for all the experience that they gave me. And I stayed there 12 years from the boyhood, uh, 18 years old to uh, around 30. This stage, I got the, the chance to join a new business coming to the UK. It wasn't new business overall. The company was Aldi, and it was uh, planning on a, uh, an assault on the uh, UK market and was looking for management to, uh, to help it get some traction. I joined them after some really deep consideration because I had a lot of fantastic experience from Iceland and stayed the next 24 years with them. Uh, and uh, the last 10 I spent as the CEO of uh, the UK and Irish business. So the bulk of my career has been spent with Aldi. And then let's say the twilight of the uh, career was to do something on my own in a advisory and, and, and board role uh, practice. First of all, actually for Aldi, I was uh, still part of their organization for, for three more years uh, in an advisory capacity. And since then, I've joined a, a number of uh, boards and set up an advisory team that focuses mostly in the emerging markets and mostly in the, the discount space. And that's where I am today. Thanks, Paul. Now, if we can go back in history to um, the words where Aldi's assault on the UK, where you got involved at a, a very early stage, the earliest stage in Aldi's presence in the UK, can you take us through what the logic was for market entry and what makes a market particularly attractive to a hard discounter like Aldi? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, and some of the points might be a bit surprising, to be honest. When a discounter like Aldi, and I have to say that uh, my knowledge is that Lidl is, is pretty similar in, uh, in its approach, is looking for new markets, it has a number of criteria which are important for it to, to feel comfortable and to, to feel confident about that market. The first is probably obvious. They're looking at the discount penetration. If there is none, and uh, when, when Aldi was looking at the UK, there was just a firm called QuickSafe that seemed to be struggling a little bit in its uh, positioning and, uh, and its success. But that was it. There was no other player on the market, and they had around 2.5% of, uh, of the market. Uh, so uh, discount penetration is a, is a, is a pretty critical uh, first factor. To give you an example, um, if you were a new discounter, you wouldn't be choosing Germany as your next market to, uh, to try and penetrate because there's already 45% of the entire market uh, controlled by discounters there. So that's number one. Number two is that you're actually looking at how rich and successful the industry is. To give you some kind of benchmarks and examples, across the world, on average, a good food retailer can earn 5% EBITDA and 3% net profit. So if you're anywhere above that, the industry would be considered rich. When Aldi Oden, uh, uh, entered the, the UK and was doing its market entry study, most of the good players who were dominant on the market had actually double-digit EBITDA figures, more than 10%. So double what the global average was. And, and what that actually means is that uh, 
they had relatively high prices. They could get away with that. The customer was quite happy to, to, to pay those prices um, because they were good operators and, uh, and, and because uh, there wasn't any uh, alternative. And uh, the customer could afford it too. So what that means for a discounter is it will not have to invest so much money to be significantly cheaper than the, the incumbents on the market. The third element is that you need a consumer who's been, by global standards, let's talk GDP per capita, rich for a generation. What happens when you have that kind of situation is people have expectations of what they consume. They are not willing to eat things that they don't like just to get enough calories inside them. They have enough money to be able to uh, consume exactly the quality level and the taste profile that they're either used to or, or, or want. And furthermore, the postman and the hedge fund manager, at the core of the diet, basically eat the same things. Same cornflakes, same jam, same milk, same beer, same cheese, same bread. All the core of the diet is pretty consistent, irrespective of what you're earning. And it only diverges when uh, you, you talk about niche products, the postman's not buying champagne every week, but that's not the core of the diet uh, either, to be honest. So this is very important to a, a discounter. And why? Because the discounter wants to come with one product in every uh, particular category. Not a wide choice of product, but one product. And it's got to appeal to the majority of people in order for it to be successful. And finally, as a kind of um, hope, I would say, uh, a discounter like Aldi when entering a, a market would prefer that its competition is stock market listed because stock market listed companies have programs, management incentive schemes, which means that the management is not likely to react to a new threat until the last minute because their whole compensation package what is expected of them as a management team, their contracts, their, uh, uh, their job descriptions are all based on maximizing shareholder value, maximizing profits. And so taking some threat 15 years into the future and trying to cancel it out now by reducing your prices and reducing your profit, that's just not on the agenda of a publicly run company before it has to. So it buys the discounter a period of time of going under the radar and uh, nobody takes any notice of it until hopefully, from the discounter's perspective, it's too late. These are the criteria that somebody like Aldi is looking for. And when Aldi is looking to enter a market, say these, as in the UK, these conditions appear to have been met, what sort of time frame is Aldi looking at to build the business? And Paul, if you could perhaps highlight some milestones, whether it's scale in operations, supply chain, buying, um, when does a discounter really start to be a threat to incumbents? Well, that, that's a super question, to be honest, because that, that is a very key part of market entry strategy. At what stage will the discounter be able to enjoy some success? And I can tell you, it's never at the beginning. Never. There are two reasons for that. First of all, food retailing is a scale business. And if you haven't got scale, then you don't have any success. And the second reason is that food retailing is a local business. What I mean by that is that the diet of the British, the great British public, 
is quite different from the French or German or um, Australian or, or UK. And it doesn't matter if you've got a big business in another country. If you try to bring the products from that other country and capitalize on that kind of a supply chain, actually you're just bringing foreign product, which will taste different, look different, smell different. It doesn't matter, but it's different. And all of the people that are listening to this who've ever traveled will, will know it's, oh, it's very interesting to go and drink coffee in, in, in France or, or eat cheese in, uh, in Belgium or chocolate in Belgium. Uh, but it's not what British people grew up with or vice versa. So you need scale in the market you're in. And the only way to get that is to, uh, to build out stores. And, and this takes time. So if you want a precise time scale, it's relatively easy to work out mathematically. What you want to be as a discounter is you want to be the biggest purchaser of private label product, because that's what the business is based on, of the products you're going to sell. So you just simply look at the stats, you look at the market leader, you work out what kind of private label business that they actually have. That becomes your target in every single product category. And then you need to do the maths. How many stores do I need to rival those guys? And what that means is you're generally talking about 10, 15 years, especially for a company that's leverage shy, uh, which Aldi definitely is. It, it, it basically wants to grow out of its own cash flows and, uh, and, and, and profitability rather than having uh, huge borrowings. And so it, bring, it builds a long-term plan to build up enough stores, to, to build up a, a local management team that can one day boast that it's got that buying power. And that buying power, it feels very confidently, even arrogantly, I would say, will bring its success. That is basically the concept. So when we entered the UK, it was understood that it would, it would take 10 to 15 years for, for the business to be uh, really successful. It took that long. It was an accurate estimation. And once we got the buying power that was superior to anybody else's, there was uh, basically no looking back. So in these early stages, Paul, how do you set up that supply base? Is it a question of calling up incumbent private label producers and tapping up marginal supply? How does that actually work? And what sort of environment do you face in building up your supply? In that, I have hundreds of interesting stories. Actually, you have to see it this way. When an industry like UK food retail industry was in the very late 80s, very early 90s, is super rich, is earning double what the industry, worldwide industry average is. Everybody does well out of that. I don't just talk about the retailers, but all the suppliers are doing well out of it. All the transport companies are doing well out of it. All the real estate uh, providers are doing well out of it. I mean, everybody gets a bit of the action. But the only person that doesn't do particularly well out of it is the consumer, uh, because they have to pay more of their hard-earned cash to, uh, to get their uh, groceries and and uh, stuff they need to, to run their lives. And um, if you come as Aldi with a clear track record that you're there to undercut all of that and to mess it all up, to, to ruin the party, you're not welcome. So there is no established player, never mind the competition, who wants to help you because uh, actually you're you're like a plague of locusts. I, I heard it described from people in the early days just coming here to suck all the profit out of our 
uh, out of our industry. Frankly, that's true. That's absolutely true. So first of all, we had to bring product from abroad, which was not a comfortable situation. It was more expensive than it should have been. And uh, it wasn't the right taste profile, but we needed something to sell. And secondly, we had to establish relationships with small upcoming suppliers who were looking for some vehicle to grow themselves. And in, in, in many cases, we actually invested money with these uh, companies, either by way of long-term contracts or actually buying the machinery them, uh, ourselves and renting it to them. So basically, we did everything over those first 15 years to get ourselves what our goal was, which is to match the quality level of the best-selling brands on the market. Now, some, some of that was easy. We could do it within four or five years. Some of it was dreadfully hard. You know, you try making a Kit Kat, even in a normal chocolate factory, which rivals a Kit Kat. It is really difficult to do. Either the chocolate mushes into the biscuit or the biscuit is too hard and breaks your teeth and and so on and so on. It was really a, a journey to end up with a thousand products which truly were rivals for the best-selling brands on the market under the private labels which the, the company was doing. Enormous fun. I can't tell you how many. I, I never had a, a corporate lunch in, in 24 years because every midday I was involved in, in testing product to see whether or not you could tell the difference between the Aldi version of uh, cornflakes and, and, and Kellogg's or the Aldi version of ketchup and, uh, and, and Heinz. And eventually we got there. So it was truly very difficult to tell the difference. And that's when you've got a business concept which the majority of consumers will not turn their noses up at. And in looking at that business today, what share of the offering will be supplied locally? And now that Aldi's been in the UK for, I mean, we're talking close to, to 30 years now. I mean, um, the, the true answer to that question is about 50%. But the a true answer to what does the UK consume is the same, around 50%. I mean, I know that everybody understands English breakfast tea, but we all know that there's no tea grown in the, in the UK. So Aldi UK imports pretty much what, in terms of ingredients or in, in terms of final product, pretty much what the, the average is for the, for the market. If you ask me what that question, uh, the answer to that question on in year one to three, it was more like 90% came from, uh, from abroad. It wasn't bad stuff. Actually, in some ways, it was higher quality. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you're a true confectioner and, and you understand chocolate, you'll know that people in Switzerland and, and, and Belgium eat a much higher quality chocolate than Cadbury's. But if you don't grow up on this much higher quality chocolate, it's the Cadbury taste you want. And no matter what you uh, put in front of the customer, if it doesn't taste like Cadbury's, there will be a significant number of people who say, no, thanks very much, that's not what I'm looking for. Matching the local expectation uh, becomes the goal of the, of the product range. So to situate some of the phenomena we're talking about in historical context, as you mentioned, it took part of your plan originally, you expected 10 to 15 years to hit scale, that must have happened just shortly before the financial crisis, I expect, or if in, the, in those few years running up to that. Paul, could you take us through how the incumbents began to respond to you, having, as you mentioned, dismissed the threat for quite a while? 
in some ways, this can sound like uh, the incumbents were sleeping at the wheel. And I've even heard that uh, phrase. I actually find that, I don't think that's fair or, or realistic. If I was running Sainsbury or Tesco or, or, or whatever um, at the same time, I'm not sure I would have done anything different, to, to be honest. After 10 years, Aldi had a couple of percent market share, a couple of hundred stores, or a bit less than a couple of hundred stores, was growing, uh, was an irritation, but it wasn't really a threat. And these guys are, are uh, faced with historical decisions on property, on, on infrastructure, and they're trying to make the best out of that for the shareholders in, in terms of profits. And, and actually, they did a very good job, I think, from a year to a year. But um, the Aldi model is this slow, creeping juggernaut which just doesn't stop. And as it gets bigger, it increases uh, by 10% every year. And that's more stores every year because you're coming off a, a, a bigger base. So first 10 years, not, nobody really took any notice uh, of us other than from time to time reminding their own supply chain. If you help these guys, first of all, you're stupid because they're going to uh, not only make our life difficult, but they're going to make your life difficult too in terms of uh, pricing and economics. And secondly, we're not going to be best pleased with you helping something that is a competitive threat. So uh, I met uh, a number of top managers of, uh, of competition and uh, you know, really senior management, they were not sleeping at the wheel. They knew what was coming, but they didn't really have the necessity or the motivation to change anything there and then. And they were all bright enough to get in an aeroplane and go and see what Aldi was like in, in countries where it had been operating for 15 or 20 or, or 25 years. So it's not realistic to say that they, they didn't know what's coming. Middle management, I think, were different because they weren't given any kind of inspiration from top management that this is going to be something that's going to be bloody difficult to compete with in 10 years' time. Food retail's a little bit like an army. You just need to get on with what you've got to achieve in the next month, quarter, half year, and nothing more. From this perspective, I don't think it's fair to talk about sleeping at the wheel. What I do think is that the financial crisis accelerated things. Because what actually happened in reality was the newspapers started talking about matters of confidence and consumer confidence I'm talking about before the consumer actually had less money in their pocket and giving tips and uh, just trying to be able to sell their newspapers with helpful and useful tips on how you might save money if life became tougher. And one of the things that they talked about is, why don't you try these new discount stores, which are popping up everywhere? We've tried them, and actually we are rather surprised at the quality level that you can get from them. Now, if that, prob that um, financial crisis had happened 10 years earlier, they wouldn't have come to that conclusion. They would have said, we've tried them, and a lot of the products taste a bit funny uh, and, and uh, a bit different to what you're normally used to. But it just happened to come at the point where the Aldi and Lidl, for that matter, uh, offer was maturing and uh, they had enough uh, scale and buying power to be able to uh, purchase exactly the products they want. So there was a bit of luck involved in, in that. The financial crisis definitely helped propel the business into uh, the consumer's mind. And, of course, it works a little bit like word-of-mouth momentum after that. 
if actually the majority of people are quite satisfied with this new uh, concept which they tried during that time, then they tend to tell people uh, to other people and, and, and the whole thing mushrooms from there. So in the early stages, very hard to establish your supply base. You're fighting for marginal capacity. You're investing in your suppliers. And I suppose as you grow in scale, the world starts opening up to the point where I suppose we're talking about the, the mid-2000s now into the post-financial crisis world. What do those supplier relationships look like as they evolve, Paul? And what are suppliers perhaps like about working with discounters that makes life easier than perhaps working with mainstream retailers? Well, when you talk about discounters, um, I, you know, I'd like to be particular about Aldi uh, in this because that's where I have my history and my uh, knowledge. And one feature of the Aldi philosophy is you have to recognize uh, how important your supply partners are. Because what does scale really mean? Scale means purchasing power with an individual supplier. So you can't have hundreds of suppliers all making one product and just selling it in different places. You actually have very few to start with one, maybe two or three in the, in the, in the future who are producing enormous scale. And if you lost one of those, it's an absolute catastrophe. Because first of all, it won't be possible for the other suppliers, even if you have a dual supply, to make up another 50% overnight. And secondly, you run the risk that the quality is not the same. And thirdly, you have the situation where your reputation is put at risk with companies that would have to make serious investment decisions to be able to make your private label to the same quality as, uh, as brands. So we were always incredibly protective over the suppliers, quite actually forgiving when uh, mistakes were made, as long as they weren't made on a constant basis, and tried to be more than fair with that supply base. And you know, what does more than fair mean? To be people who agree things on handshakes and don't need 50-page contracts to endorse it. And secondly, to pay on time. I mean, the biggest single question every supplier will have about its uh, uh, retail partner is, am I gonna get the money for the product that I've put all the investment into and delivered to their uh, warehouse 15, 20, 25, or 30 days, whatever the contract actually says uh, later. And I can tell you, you would have got fired in Aldi if you paid one day late. A CEO would get fired if he deliberately paid one day late a supplier. So a high integrity approach to dealing and working with your suppliers, in other words. Yeah, but, but necessary. You know, it wasn't out of some kind of charity. It's a nice thing to be able to tell your management that's how we behave. Most young managers like me who joined were dead impressed with that uh, philosophy because it's always been there. But as you get into the business, you realize actually it's fundamentally necessary because you're looking for the very lowest price possible. So you want to give all the guarantees that, that help you get to that point. Right. So, Paul, as we fast forward now to these later stages where the discounters are now a major force in the UK market, um, and specifically Aldi and Lidl, let's take those businesses, the industry profit pool has been substantially diminished over the past 20 years. I think some estimates are around half or by around half. If we look at the strategic options available to incumbents today? Is this a question of simply 
managing this juggernaut. And I suppose we've seen from Tesco, from all the major players, price rebasing, price investment, they're taking cost out of their supply chain. But in terms of the principles by which this movie plays out, as you mentioned, this has happened in so many countries. In the UK, is this simply a threat to manage? How would you describe that? Because I think the story's not done yet. I told you the first 10 years, uh, the company was insignificant in terms of impact on the market. The second 10 years, they were an ever-growing irritation. And at 2008, when the financial crisis occurred, it was a kind of explosion for the discounters and, and, and Audi in particular. The following 10 years were just pain after pain after pain for the rest of the industry as the momentum really kicked in. The number of new stores grew dramatically uh, each year and the penetration and the sales per square meter of the old stores just got stronger and stronger as the business was recognized for, uh, for what it really stood for with, uh, with the consumer. And the story's not over because um, it's pretty well known that the discounters have a belief that they can put 1,500 stores each, that's Aldi and Lidl in the UK, if you look at where they are today, they have around two-thirds of that, a little bit less than two-thirds of it. So there's another third minimum to come, and that's more buying power, more uh, ability to, uh, to innovate, as well as just more selling space. And this will disrupt some of the weaker players even further. So, so the story's not over, albeit that it's probably peaked in terms of the rest of the industry knowing what's, uh, what's coming. Uh, next. How do you handle that? Well, I mean, now we should go back to the first 10 years. If you're a privately owned business, which was owning a big market share, you probably would have handled it differently. You probably would have understood that actually what these guys, the discounters want is a price gap. Their product is significantly cheaper than, uh, first of all, the private label option of the uh, other retailers, and then secondly, the branded products that they were, were copying. And it's up to you as an incumbent whether you let them have that. Now, there's a price to not uh, letting them have it. You've got to cut your prices and cut your profits. But if you starve them of the oxygen of that price gap, they will just grow much, much slower. They could even divert their energy to other markets where it's a bit tougher. So Ali and Lidl do not go to uh, countries where the profit margins are a half of what the industry average across the world is because it's just too tough there. They, they, they would just have to invest too much money to have the appropriate price gap to get any kind of uh, starting scale. So there's the first thing. You can stop a discounter when it's in its early stages by starving it of the oxygen of being able to have any kind of price gap. The second thing that you do is you have to look at your own costs. And in this regard, I think actually the Tesco story is, is a pretty positive one because um, through a, a complete restructuring of their organization, they have been easily the leader, particularly in the last seven or eight years, of taking cost out of their business, which allows them to compete better with the discounters. And this is a key point, but it's, it, it's culturally are very difficult to do. Normally, you need a new management team to be that uh, dramatic. You need a kind of revolution within the company, and uh, that's kind of what happened at, uh, at Tesco. And I think they've done 
a pretty reasonable job given where they were six or seven years ago in hammering their costs and and, and being able to uh, lower prices without catastrophically ruining uh, profits. I mean, I, I agree with you, the profit pool has halved and the market leader has, uh, is very much part of that. And there was zero chance of returning back to the days of eight, 9% EBITDA or even double digits, which they were uh, in the late 80s. But uh, now they're back, let's say, on par with uh, uh, worldwide averages and cost cutting has been a key part of that. Well, just to go into a bit of detail on a really important part of the discounter model being the control that a business like Aldi would have on its operating cost base. So its overheads, store operating costs, logistics, head office costs. Could you bring that to life for us a little bit? If you have any benchmarks off the top of your head, that's really interesting. Or just for a feel of how tight cost management is and what sort of cultural philosophy underpins that. I would say that in a discounter, costs are of the highest importance, actually even higher than sales. And that's really quite a dramatic statement for anybody that calls themselves a retailer. So it's it's costs first is the, uh, the mantra. And what that means is that the business has to find a way to bring its management into the industry in a very specific way so that costs mean something. And the Aldi philosophy, which was incredibly successful, was actually to forego experience, but just get extremely bright people. So it went to the universities. It focused on uh, the universities with the highest entry um, requirements in terms of educational results. And it looked for the maths, business studies, or or, uh, anything commercial type topics and and looked for the very best candidates. Now, these candidates were also the targets for most of the merchant banks and for some of the really big worldwide businesses like Procter & Gamble or or Mars. So you're in tight competition for, for these people. And the key when you're starting is sheer economics. You actually have to make an offer which is better than a Goldman Sachs would offer. And this is the philosophy of the business. It pays double the starting rate for, and, and I mean double, not, not a few percent more, 100% more as a starting rate for a graduate uh, leaving with, uh, with excellent results. And uh, it has all kinds of guarantees uh, about early responsibility, which is also a, a, a very big attractor to uh, these kind of people. And then you put them through a very professional, tough, but very professional uh, program where they learn what costs really means. And you've got to remember that Aldi is a very specific business. It uh, does basically one thing. It runs Aldi stores. And uh, Aldi stores are around the world pretty much identical in size, pretty much identical in terms of what it costs to build the building, pretty much identical in what uh, sales per square meter it's uh, expecting, and pretty much identical in in terms of what costs it's uh, doing. And the whole thing is run on a lead table type basis. And uh, it's hugely competitive. When you get your results uh, as a business manager within the company, they are compared with everybody else doing a very similar job in a very similar environment. 
And you do not want to be in the bottom 25%. You just don't. Because the kind of people are very competitive. The whole company is set up on that kind of basis. And uh, you want to be in the top 25% of performers. And costs are measured first. And this is the philosophy. So after only a few years, most Audi management can tell you exactly how long it will take to clean a store in minutes, how long it will take to merchandise a pallet, how long it will take to unload a truck, how long it will take to process 100 customers through the cash registers. And there are prizes given for people who can invent a small change to the business process that will quicken something up, even if it's only a few seconds, because that few seconds is multiplied by thousands of stores and hundreds of days per year. And the final bill for this super little idea is often worth an astronomical amount of money in terms of cost reduction. That's the philosophy for which the business is built on. A nice little example. If uh, you pick up a product, I don't have one in front of me, but if you pick up a product, and you show it to a normal food retailer, he will look at the colors. He will look at the messages uh, that the product has on it. He will look at how beautiful this item is, and he's thinking how many of those guys can sell. I tell you, you put this product in front of any Aldi operating manager, and the first thing you look at is how big is the barcode? Because if that doesn't scan with one sweep of the arm across the cash register, that's going to cost me money. That's just one of a thousand examples I could give you of how this cost mentality is built in from, uh, from, from day one. Paul, in terms of what that translates to in terms of benchmarking for logistics costs, store operating costs versus a mainstream retailer, are there some patterns that have emerged that, that, uh, with any degree of consistency that you could share with us? If you just take the store operational expense, which is pretty much the biggest expense any food retailer has. It's half, as a percentage of sales, it's half what uh, a general supermarket would, uh, and a well-run general supermarket. Well-run general supermarket needs 8% of its sales to, uh, to run its business at store level, and an Aldi store can run for four. I mean, that's four percentage difference. There's a whole host of other differences across the business, but uh, that's the biggest single one, the, the labor productivity. And that comes from a, a culture of understanding how long every single task takes. Are you meeting those targets? And um, uh, how can you improve so that you are even further ahead of the competition in the future? Paul, in the few moments we have left, um, and that's been a fantastically rich picture of the mechanics of the model. I think we've covered a lot of ground there. To Explore a dimension of this story um, that involves your leadership experience and your role as a leader of an organization like Aldi in the UK specifically. Could you talk to us about some of the, well, first of all, in terms of the leadership culture that you were, I suppose you grew into over the time that you were at the business, what those leadership culture, what those leadership principles really involved, where they were centered on. And maybe I'll get into some slightly more detailed question of what that means in practice. But for now, in terms of leadership philosophy and leadership culture, what would you say your experience was at Aldi? I had a number of uh, fantastic mentors because the company is just full of people with a lot of experience. I described to you the way in which management is recruited. And it's not some of the management is recruited like that. All of the management is recruited. So they all join 
somewhere in the mid-20s. There are no people 45 years of age with a huge experience of other businesses who, who join uh, Aldi. If you meet somebody who's 50 years old, you can pretty much guarantee they got 25 years experience. So I had a number of mentors who had that kind of experience when I first joined. And what they taught me was two things, really. In the industry that we're in, the food retail industry, what you have to do is be very, very clear about the vision that the company has. Now, that sounds a bit of a kind of buzzword, but what I mean is, what are we actually trying to do? At Aldi, we were actually trying to sell very good products, benchmark to the brand leader for much less. And the way we did it was to have much lower costs. And that message was explained in four or five different ways, but constantly and with never a break in clarity. So number one is you have to make it very, very clear what exactly are we here to do and why are we doing everything that uh, we're doing? What, you know, what's the purpose? The second thing is you have to find ways in which to turn that vision into a form of personal pride of the people that are actually uh, doing it. And that comes in, a, in a, a lot of different ways. I'll give you an example. When I first started with uh, Aldi, our till system, our cash register system, was to key in by hand the prices on a keyboard, a little bit like you would find somebody who works in an accounting office. They don't look at the calculator. Uh, it's all done differently these days. But in those days, they don't look at the calculator. They look at a stream of figures and they key them in on a keyboard. It's why, by the way, every five has some little knob on it uh, here so that when you're not looking at it, you automatically know uh, your finger that your, uh, your middle finger's on the five and the four is to the left of it and the six is on the right of it, et cetera, et cetera. We could key in prices four times faster than a scanner. Not only that, we were more accurate than a scanner, which relies on people putting the right prices on, uh, on the shelf and having the right prices in an IT system, which in the 80s and early 90s was not a foolproof uh, system. And the reason I'm explaining all this is that hundreds of customers going through would say to our cashiers, how do you do that? That's incredible. And they would check them to see whether or not they were right. And then when they recognized they were right, they would say, that's amazing. And no matter what we paid our cashiers, there was nothing quite like the drug of people telling you, you do something I couldn't do. Actually, it was simpler to do than the, than the customer recognized. But the pride that these people had of being told every day, that's amazing. That was really something. And that was actually my biggest fear when we changed to uh, scanning. How would we repeat that uh, pride factor that we were getting from the customers uh, every day? But we found other ways of doing it when we changed to a, a, a scanning system. But it taught me, find ways in which you can make your uh, staff proud. And funny enough, through this COVID-19 uh, situation, a similar thing has occurred through the whole industry that I think the people serving on the front line feel rather proud that they're somehow doing some kind of service uh, for their uh, customers and getting applause for it. Could take the example of a young manager, whether it's a store manager or regional manager, how do I come in and, and instill that degree of pride? What actions can I take to drive that attitude and inspire frontline staff in this kind of industry? 
Well, first of all, somebody's got to explain it to you that it's important. So you have to have company programs which explain in a statistical way why people have longer service than the industry average, why people are prepared to work harder for the package that they get. And you're looking for people who, in a management sense, who have some basic leadership qualities which they learned at school, university, or maybe they have by characteristic. So uh, I don't mind admitting we stole some leadership tests for management joining the company from the army who were looking for characteristics and traits uh, similar to what uh, we were of people who have some natural leadership and uh, charisma uh, abilities. But on top of that, you also need brain power because not everybody ends up in a pure leadership role. They can end up buying products, they can end up purchasing property, but the core individual that joined the company all went through this basic training program of understanding what the vision of the company was and how is it that you make sure that people uh, feel proud of the work that they are doing. And I think these points were absolutely invaluable over the next five, 10 years of these uh, individuals' uh, career paths. Just to circle back and recap one dimension of this story, it's come up in a number of ways around private ownership and a business like Aldi and its close peer Lidl being under private ownership, competing with incumbents that are very often in markets like the UK or the US that are listed that have incentives that maybe limit the time horizon by which they're looking at things. Could you recap for us in its most important forms, the advantage that a company like Aldi has had in being privately owned and competing with publicly listed competitors? Look, first of all, Will, it's not the only model. There are many models of success, but nevertheless, it works for uh, Aldi and it works extremely well. If you're privately owned, you can normally afford to be, one, very consistent, even when times are difficult. Two, you are able to invest to create new markets for the future, probably for longer and with more patience than a, a business that has shareholders who can pick and choose whether or not they invest in company A or they leave and an, an invest in company B and are looking for quicker returns on, on their investment decisions. So these facts are, uh, are uh, clear, but you've also got to have a good concept uh, because you need to make enough money to be able to stand that. If I look at the Aldi All Legals investment program in big new countries that they go into, if you add all the property investments that they make, all the investments in the supply base that they will need to make in the first 10 years, and the negative EBITDA they will make to begin with, I'm pretty confident that half a billion US dollars is the war chest you need to go and make it in a new country over the first 10 years. If you haven't got that kind of money, you're gonna to have to borrow it and pay that back to someone else. And uh, you've gotta have a pretty successful business uh, behind you to, and a lot of confidence to go and invest that money before you see uh, the real returns that that particular market can uh, deliver. And Ali certainly has that confidence and it has that financial power to, to be able to do it. 
But, you know, that's a story since back in the 50s that the business has been built on some very clear principles and has been built in a very successful way. Even with a few mistakes along the way, it's always stuck to uh, its basic principles.